Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. In each episode, we'll be joined by leading thinkers and experts on a massive range of exciting topics. Together, we aim to stimulate the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations, and glimpses into our shared future. So here's a sobering fact. Research has shown that up to 18% of UK adults feel lonely, often or always. And loneliness can have a great impact on our health as obesity and smoking. So it's something that really can affect us all of us at some point in our life. So isn't it time we took some collective action? Well, the good news is that there are some really inspiring people pioneering some low-tech and high-tech ways to tackle what is increasingly a modern epidemic. So today we're discussing what loneliness actually is and what can be done about it. Well, joining me to discuss this is Carrie Deacon, Head of Social Action Innovation at Nesta, and Sanderson Jones, social innovator, comedian, and founder of the Sunday Assembly. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Hello. Hi there. So first of all, let's let's talk about what loneliness actually is. How would you both define loneliness? Sanderson, what, what are your thoughts? Someone who's not me said that uh, solitude is the joy of being alone and that loneliness is the pain of being alone. So I think it is uh, a form of unchosen social isolation, uh, lack of uh, human contact. And uh, yeah, but it's also self-defined as well. So, uh, yeah, I would... You know, it's just the fact that I'd say nowadays we're just less and less connected to people and we're no longer part of communities uh, as in the way that we once were. Mm. What, what do you think? So I, I kind of think of it about being uh, meaningful connections and relationships. So the absence of those makes us feel this uh, this feeling of loneliness which I think is um, I think some scientists have said it's kind of our innate um, hormones and um, uh, human response which is saying to us there's something missing in our lives Uh, and it's not just being alone uh, you know that solitude as you've mentioned Sanderson it's about feeling that you don't have the relationships the connections that you need to make you happy and live the good life that Mm. you want to Um, and I think as, as Sanderson has alluded to we're perhaps living in an age where connection seems like it could be easier than ever and perhaps we've um, lost some of that meaningful connection that we we know we need yeah if we go back to the evolutionary point of view and imagine us uh, as chimpanzees uh, you know having a lark uh, somewhere in Africa the moment that you are no longer part of that chimpanzee group uh uh-oh, you're going to die. So that is built into us, that sort of software hardwired into us. And so the moment that we feel, oh, I don't have my people, cortisol comes rushing in. It is, you know, it's life and death. And so that's still in us. And, you know, we go, and if we don't have that connection, if we don't have those connections, then we're going to be feeling that. And that is a really bad feeling. So that that's really interesting because there's a biology behind loneliness, which um, is something which isn't often talked about. Um, uh, you know, that's why I guess it has a physical as well as an, a mental feedback. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a really interesting work. There's Susan Pinker did, wrote her book, The Village Effect, which is all about. And, and for her, the thing was, it's actually face to face contact. You know, if you go and see someone on the screen, all these health benefits that you get from being in connection with other people, you don't you don't receive them if you're just Skyping. It can have its other benefits, but it's 
about that face-to-face connection, which we pick up on in all these different ways, you know, all these different senses that you're, you're firing off. And it's got these amazing benefits, like the rates of a survival from cancer compared to people who've got rich social lives compared to people who don't are hugely higher. As I mentioned at the beginning, um, I've said this is a 21st century epidemic. Has it has it got a lot worse, Carrie? And, and is it sort of seemingly a growing problem in today's society? So the, the data is showing that perhaps it is, is getting worse. So there's some longitudinal studies from uh, Christina Victor, which has shown that the percentage of older people experiencing chronic loneliness has probably remained static in some ways. Um, but there's also some people, uh, a longitudinal study showing that there's a rise in the number of people aged over 65 who feel lonely sometimes. So that's kind of some of the work that is being shown that it is it is creating um, perhaps more... This, there's a sense that we are experiencing more loneliness. And I think for other age groups, there's a, a kind of... Uh, for old, not older people, for uh, younger people, for all of us, there's an, an increasing attention that we might be experiencing loneliness in a different way as well um, and what that might be. I think um, I get a sense, speaking to people up and down the country, people working in this field, that the societal changes that we're experiencing, the the phenomenon of, of kind of globalisation, gentrification, house prices, living away from your family, all of those kinds of things are contributing to a feeling that we are more disconnected in spite of having online social media and, and ways to connect in a billion different ways. So, for example, I know young people in my family who may have a thousand Facebook friends friends but no one to call to if they've got a bit of a, a problem on a Friday night or, or something like that. So the sense of us feeling that we are not as in control of our connections, we haven't got that village around us and we're not really designing and building for that in the same way. So, you know, I think whilst it may have always existed in loneliness, some of the structures that we're creating, some of the ways that we organise as uh, as society are perhaps maybe contributing to it much more. What about the kind of social manners that come into this as well? Because, you know, you can have loads of uh, friends uh, in your neighbourhood, perhaps. um, But maybe perhaps increasingly we don't feel like we can just ring the doorbell or just pop round uh you know with all of these connections and all of this technology maybe we feel that we have to make appointments for social contact does that do you think do you get a sense of that at all i think there's certainly uh fewer and fewer places where you know, these connections just happen. We don't have, you know, the pub is no longer, you know, I think it was 90% of people used to go once a month. And, you know, because that was the place, it was the only place which had heating. This is some time back. The only place which had heating, the only place which had lights, it had games. There were other people. You didn't have Netflix. And so everyone would go and see each other. And so there's, I think often we go and make these choices about like, I'm just going to go and, you know, watch a Netflix series and I love it. But then it also does mean that you're not going out and going and finding that connection. And I think people do feel that there are, you know, they, they, they might be imposing or every, you know, this is coming from London where everyone's so gosh darn busy that you have to book an appointment seven months in advance and then cancel it four times. And then you realize you haven't seen someone for 10 years. So I think there are also these different sort of social manners and then also the lack of structures to go and create that. Uh, it sounds like the, the, the physicality of having a place where you can drop in and, 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 and have 
FaceTime, if you like, where physical time with other people is something that 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 you've you've really uh, spent a lot of time with. You bring people together for the social contacts on uh, a Sunday, the Sunday assembly thing. T- tell us more about that. It's definitely not a religious thing, is it? No, it isn't. We very <laughs> much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on, I run a cult. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, as I've said many times, it's not a cult, but that's exactly what I'd say if it was. Uh, and so it comes from this really simple idea. I went to a Christmas carol concert and I thought there's so much about this that I love I love the singing I love the coming together I love being there with my family seeing people that I don't often see thinking about yourself you know trying to go and improve yourself I just thought it's a shame that there's not something like this for me because I happen not to believe in God so in the back of my mind I thought maybe one day I could do that I bumped into another comedian uh, Pippa Evans and she had had a similar idea and we decided to do it together We launched it in 2013. It then went viral, spread all over the world. Today, there's about 40 different Sunday assemblies in six different countries. And what we're really trying to do is go and repurpose the congregational community, which is the most effective structure which has ever been invented for bringing people together and getting them, giving them a sense of meaning. Like it's, there's a reason that Islam and Hinduism and Christianity are everywhere because they've got this structure let's go and repurpose it so that everyone can be involved. And the good thing about that is it means that much of my job is leading people singing power ballads uh, in the centre of uh, London every on the first and third Sunday of the month. But there's also these congregations all over. And so, yeah, but it's I think it's really important that if you go and look at the congregational community, it's not just that sense of community, uh, though it is. And it's not just on a Sunday. It's also small groups. It's also, uh, you know, sort of personal development. It's also activities together. And what they do really well is they give a sense of belonging, that community, but also a sense of meaning also a narrative for the world. So I think that's something which is always really worth thinking about what these different communities can provide. But yeah, there's there's nothing like being together and really feeling that you're part of a community. And that's been a wonderful thing to see and to experience. It's interesting using the word congregation, actually, in a very different context, because when you first hear that word, you think automatically church, you know, worship. Sure. But actually, congregation is just a group of people coming together and, and you know, and hanging out. But isn't I it? would say that I'm actually specifically using it. I took a long time to try to, to redefine work out, it. To, no, to say congregational communities as you try to work out this language, which goes and allows everyone to take part uh, because we are looking at that and so the analogy I would use is so John Kabat-Zinn is the founder of modern mindfulness and he was a Buddhist practitioner and a doctor and he thought he suddenly had this insight wow this type of meditation could really help people who are in pain actually it could help anyone it could but he couldn't rightly go to his hospital and say hey everyone we've got to become buddhists and so what he did is he went and rewrote it in a secular way he made sure it was inclusive and then he created an evidence base for it and that was in 1979 he started that journey and it's only now sort of in the past five years that it's really become mainstream and it's still not totally mainstream and so i would say that what what John Kabat-Zinn did for Buddhist meditation, we're doing for congregation, saying that this this series of techniques can be used in lots of different situations and we should definitely go and copy it because it is so effective. Can I just ask, what, what's the most popular power ballad that people sing? 
Oh, I mean, I have sung uh, Don't Stop Me Now by Queen times without counting. (laughs) But then actually the real, uh, to go and see a load of people singing Flashdance, the uh, theme tune from that by Irene Class, I think, is just phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a a feeling. And you just see (laughs) the the fists come out. Everyone's saying, take your pat. I was at a a conference when I did this. And then these, actually these songs get transformed when they're in a different context like if you go to a funeral you suddenly go and hear you know uh, a song and you're like oh my god this is so meaningful and I was at a conference and I'd saw that someone had written after we'd sung uh, What's a Feeling he had written down take your passion make it happen underline <laughs> underline as though it was a, a, words from um, old Plato there but there, there is something probably about the unifying experience that you're talking about the purpose that, that that's not just about a group of people coming together and and, you know, there's lots of ways that we, we do bring people together. Mm. But I think what's quite interesting is you're talking about purpose, you're talking about meaning, you're talking about ways of doing things as a united group, which, you know, perhaps without organised religion and things like that, there aren't as as many ways to do those kind of things. I feel like you have a higher purpose for something. Uh, for sure. And, yeah, that's when I go and look at so many of the issues which are happening in society, I think it's because the structures for creating meaning and belonging have collapsed. Like we no longer have stories that we can all get behind and go, oh look, we're going over there. That's great. And we don't we certainly don't have a story which is, oh, we're getting over there and so's France and so's China and so's but wherever else. And I think creating those stories and creating those new narratives is one part of it, but it's also how can we live that Uh, at a local level so that we can actually feel connected to what is going on in the world. Because I think so many of the issues which happen is because we don't see how our small little life going along here is connected to Westminster or Washington or the Bilderberg group uh, and uh, don't worry there's no conspiracy theories here uh, just thought I'd toss it in there and just it suddenly went silent for a minute. Who have we invited on? Uh, the Yeah and so it's you know that when you've got that structure of meaning which goes with that community then as you're laying the brick you know that it's building the cathedral so it's about purpose and it's about community there's lots of different key stra- I think it's also about this. power so we do quite a lot of thinking at Nesta around power and how power and powerlessness and and sometimes in it, when you're experiencing loneliness it feels like you haven't got the power mm. to make the change and also people around you don't feel like they have power to to make the change happen on that so how do we think about who has power in that situation and how do you enable people who are experiencing that thing to have the power to make the changes they want to make and that was it was actually someone at uh, future fest uh, about five years ago uh, roberto unger mm. who uh, I'm just going to tell you now, I did not finish his book that I started because that guy loves long words and has no sympathy if you don't. Uh, but one of his key things is it's written, it was, and his talk was about the religion of the future and how we actually need to go and have this new structure. And one of the things he said is that it's to... Uh, religious structures, and I would actually contest the word religious because that's not what we're doing, they actually go and answer humanity's sense of belittlement 
you know, that feeling that we are so very small in such a very big world. And it's, you know, having that story which goes and says, actually, you know, you are vitally important. You are a miracle. You, your life has meaning and is connected to this wider whole. But yeah, so many of the sort of issues which are happening now is because people don't have that. That's really interesting. Well, uh, that, and that sense of purpose is something which another social innovation tackling loneliness um, is, is, is really grappling with. Uh, it's called Good Gym. Um, and it achieves that kind of double whammy of providing social contact for people on their own uh, and uh, a fitness boost to the volunteers who provide it. Um, and uh, earlier, we, I spoke to uh, Ivo Gormley uh, from Good Gym, who explained uh, just how it works. So Good Gym was basically a solution to my own problem, which was that I wasn't exercising. Uh, and I just didn't find the idea of the gym motivating. I didn't like that idea of going into a, a sweaty basement and lifting loads of things that didn't really need lifting. And I wanted to find a way of giving myself a real reason to get out there and exercise. Um, and so in 2008, I started running to deliver the newspaper to an elderly, isolated neighbor. Um, he was someone who didn't really see any fam family or friends on a regular basis. Um, and was housebound. So for him, having someone come in uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays and bring the newspaper around, um, yeah, gave him that sense of connection to the outside world. And for me, it was a really good reason to get out there and exercise, even if it was windy and rainy outside. But what I discovered was that it it worked really well for me. Um, you know, over over the years that I was visiting uh, Terry, we became friends, and we had a very mutually supportive relationship. He was the one who was telling me I needed to run further and sort of pushing me uh, to do other types of exercise as well. So actually it was very motivating for me. And for him, yeah, it was it was really meaningful to have that someone coming to talk to him specifically. Um, he had carers, but it's a very different thing to have an actual friendship as opposed to a sort of professional care relationship. And the statistics about isolation and loneliness of older people were becoming, you know, there was more research going into that at that time. Um, and yeah, it, it, it was a huge issue. So I thought, you've got loads of people who yeah, would like to exercise a bit more in, in cities and also loads of people who'd like to do a bit more for their communities. And at the same time, this huge need uh, for different ways to support um, vulnerable, lonely people in their homes. And so I thought if you could put those two together, actually, that could be an interesting solution at scale. Um, we're now operating in 47 different cities and boroughs um, across the UK. Uh, we have over 10,000 members and we'll have uh, over 1,000 runners out, you know, doing, doing good in some form uh, every week. Um, so we're starting to become, you know, a, a, a significant sort of community resource of providing that extra support to community organizations and also organizations that work. Um, work with older people. Uh, we do a lot of changing smoke alarm batteries or light bulbs, clearing overgrown gardens, um, helping people uh, get um, prepare their house when they come home from hospital, a lot of moving beds from upstairs to downstairs. Um, we take referrals from hospital discharge teams, um, from occupational therapists, from uh, lots of different uh, people who are frontline staff who, who work with older people. Um, and our web platform developed by um, Patrick and, and, and Dave, our, our developers, uh, is you know increasingly handling you know higher volumes of, of, of these referrals and more intelligently matching um, the the time and resources of, of runners with the tasks that need 
that, that need doing. And, and that's taken, you know, a, a long time to work out the sort of what the spec of the platform should be. And it continues to, 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 to evolve to, to meet the needs of both referrers and the runners. It feels really good to do to do what we're doing, if you know what I mean. When, if you go on a, a group session, it's likely to be very good for you. Um, and it's also likely to help that, that community project that you help too. Um, so I think that sense of being part of something is uh, exactly the same in the older people that we work with and, and the runners. Um, I was talking to um, a, a runner and their coach that we call the older people coaches because it's their responsibility to encourage encourage the runners to, to, to keep going and to sort of share their share their wisdom really. Um, and that's and it was just yeah really wonderful hearing both of their experiences about how important it is for um, for the younger, often younger runners um, to connect with the history of their area, to connect with another generation when they potentially don't live near their uh, parents or grandparents um, anymore. So I think it, it provides a, an amazing sense of connection and belonging um, to an area uh, as a runner. So Gary Sanderson, that sounds like a, a really good example of a social innovation that has kind of mutuality built into it you know the sort of social contact and fitness on both sides should we be thinking more about those kinds of ways of not just parachuting someone in to provide contact which i I guess is not necessarily that effective uh but actually providing something on both sides yeah i think uh the the models that i've been most excited about are about equal and reciprocal relationships it's not about someone helping out someone else it's about that meaningful connection across generations across barriers across uh, you know organizations to to kind of really uh, make people feel part of something that's bigger i think there's also great stuff which is about social groups so not just individuals and I think there's uh, lots of exciting stuff you know Sunday Assembly being a great one but um, we've seen things like North London Cares or the Cares family as they're growing which bring together people to decide what they want to do together so younger and older people to choose what what's of interest to them not us dictating so allowing people within communities to say what's, what's imp- meaningful and important and increasingly I'm seeing even local authorities looking at how how they create and facilitate those kinds of relationships so, for example, I was speaking to Barnsley the other day, Barnsley Local Authority, and they are deeply looking at that. York do lots of work in that. So there's great stuff going on where people are really beginning to see and value that it's not all different kinds of connection and that we have to invest in those kinds of connections. It's interesting that you use the word invest. Uh, I am now going to go and bang a drum, which uh, uh, people don't like me banging that much. Uh, But I think that word invest is really important because I also think as a country and as uh, the, the world that we live in at the moment, where I think connection to a lot of these traditional religious models isn't there, is the fact that if you want community and if you want meaning... It's not going to come down from Barnsley Council. It's about, you know, you creating it and actually putting money into it, (laughs) bearing in mind there's something which, uh, you know, and it's really hard for us to go and get this, our ideas around this, because it it seems, so this should should just be here. I'm volunteering, I'm giving my time, what have you. But actually, if it's really important, then and all the evidence shows that it is, then it should also show up in your bank statement in some ways, because... Otherwise, what? What is it? Is does it turn out Vodafone is more important? Is Starbucks? Is uh, is a Frappuccino or whatever else it might be? And the reason I bring that up is 
because one of the great things about congregational communities is that they are really good at that. And they're really good at, you know, actually putting a proposition to people, which then ends up with them investing in their community and in this sense of purpose. It can also sometimes be abused. But like if we really want to go around sort of uh, reviving the infrastructure of care and rebuilding the scaffolding of community, then it's not just going to come from above. It's going to come from below as well. And uh, it also requires funding. Definitely. And I think working from the individual, you know, how do we, how, what's the story that we tell ourselves and each other that is compelling, that says it's as important to me as going to, uh, you know, Vodafone or to buy the latest iPhone that I invest in my relationships and, and my time is about connections and, and really making, making space in your life. But I guess from the individual, there's also about how you can have that at the community level. So how do we work together? So it's For all sure. it, the atomization of it being yeah. about the individual I think sometimes is a problem how do we think of that in organising how we live in streets in neighbourhoods in communities I think we've lost some of some of that confidence in doing that there's a road association on my on my road in in Walthamstow that I didn't know about but I got I get these letters every now and again and it's really great what they do which is they organize it something each year for care leavers in a, a local community which is brilliant but there's so much more we could do but over over the years that's mothballed and it's just a, a couple of things so there's you know ways we can do that but I also think there is a role for kind of public services policy making in creating the conditions that sure. make it happen so I think it's important when I when I refer to the fact that policymakers, um, health authorities, you know, local government and national government have have woken up and said this is important. I think is a really important moment for how we as a society start talking about it and take action. And that's why I'm actually really excited that in the last year you've seen a transformation about that. You know, the work of the Joe Cox Commission and all the other partners and, and now government means that the narrative is starting to change about the value of this stuff. And, and also, I'm not going to come across as though the role of the state in policy isn't important, but I think it's it has to be, it doesn't just come from there. It's yeah. not a service that is provided. Yeah. And I think, and it's really hard for, one thing I've learned is Sunday, in Sunday Assembly, and I've had to learn this, is that we've got to learn how to be in community. Mm. You know, it's not just a lot of people want community, but you give as much as you receive and there are responsibilities as well as rights. You know, it's not just people remembering your birthday. It's it will you will be able to do fewer things because you are part of a community. And also, and this one's one which is really hard, if you want a sense of belonging, it's gonna contain pain. So it's uh, partly <laughs> Well, it's a kind of new skill set or a skill set we might need to relearn and maybe For have sure. some new tools to be able to do that more effectively. I think we've probably got the skill set there. It's how do you... How, I'd contest that. Yeah, well, I, I really believe that we're, we've well, got the I capabilities. Um, I think we've got the, the capabilities. And, but I think and the got... skill set. I okay, really do. Right. I think what we've got ourselves into habits and behaviours that are not always conducive to that. But you, I, I think you can change that. And I think there's p uh, lots of potential to do that. I also think that there's um, interesting kind of forms of, uh, of kind of stuff coming forward which is about us as realizing that we're not alone and sure. you know i think the the politics debates the all the stuff that's going on with trust and things like that, people are saying we want to live in a slightly different way and it feels like maybe we've got a, a turning point i'm hugely optimistic about it because 10 years ago i think we were talking about loneliness 
and it was probably shooting it into the to the breeze. Nothing was really really changing. Whereas I feel like maybe there's a lot more people individually and as communities realising. So we could be on the cusp of a social change. You sound like you're quite optimistic. Um, how about you, Sanson? Oh, I think that the history of uh, new movements and new forms of coming together is characterised by sort of long build-up and then sudden quick change. And if you go and look at the history of the Great Awakening, if you go and look at the history of Chartism, for instance, these things can come very quickly. And what I really love is that it's about how can we have this conversation about community in a way which everyone can feel involved. Because the great thing is, I have a feeling that we could go and speak to, you know, the uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Jeremy Corbyn and say, hey, guys, I think more communities should come together to go and help each other and to go and uh, be more responsible for their environment and more responsible for their area so that you can build uh, a better future. And I think they'd go, yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's trying to go and have really make sure that everyone can feel that they can be part of any new story that we have about it. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. 